going to pause and we're going to look to our Lord now in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is as we continue to explore the wisdom that's found in this book and be able to apply it continuously to life is to be able, Father, to be able to understand the intent of the words and be able to develop wise application as to how it's to be used in our lives personally, but also in the lives of this church collectively. Because you position us in equipped settings. You, you position us in life groups. You position us in men's ministries and women's ministries and the likes in the Iwana and the youth group to make a difference. So, Father, what we do now in this gathered state, shortly we'll be in a scattered state, is to be able to take what's here and root it deeply into life experience. So these minutes are important. We're exploring your word. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It being President's Day weekend, some thoughts emerge that relate to this sixth chapter. One has to do with a former president, Ulysses Grant. Clarence McCartney tells the story of Grant and his faithful friend, his chief of staff, John Rawlins. And McCartney tells us that Rollins was closer to Grant than anyone during the Civil War, as well as during the presidency as well. And it was to Rollins, McCartney writes, that Grant gave his pledge that he would abstain from alcohol. And when he broke that pledge, Rollins went to him with earnestness, pleaded with him for his sake and for the sake of the nation, this man, who most likely was an alcoholic, would abstain. So many lives were at stake. McCartney writes, faithful were the wounds of that friend. In front of the Capitol at Washington today, there stands this monument of General Grant leading the troops during the Civil War sitting on his horse in characteristic pose, flanked on either side by stirring battle scenes. But at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, a little to the south of the avenue, is Rollins Park. And there stands a very ordinary, commonplace statue of Rollins. McCartney went on to say, whenever I have stood before this great monument of Grant on his horse there in front of the Capitol, I think of that other monument. I think of that faithful friend who had a way of keeping Grant on his horse. And when I read that, I thought of what is found here in Job 6 in general, Job 6.14 in particular. 
Because the Hebrew word here that's used to describe the richness of a relationship of people who know Christ as Lord and Savior is the Hebrew word hesed. Now, throughout the Older Testament, it's oftentimes translated loving kindness or it's translated as grace. However it's translated, though, the idea is the same. There's something of a sacrificial nature in a relationship in which you are pouring yourself in for the sake of another individual so that they'll be able to continue on in the battles of life. And so now, what you've got to ask yourself at this point, how is God positioning me to be able to provide hesed in the various relationships that God has sovereignly placed me in at this time of life? What I want to do with you now, with verse 14, is our pivotal verse, is to draw four life conditions that I see here in this sixth chapter that I think relate to the way in which we are to live with a sense of hesed toward one another. And the first comes of verse 1 down to verse 7. It begins this way, that in times of great hardship, and Job is experiencing intense great hardship, Kindness, Hebrew word hesed, needs to be provided by us, even when friends spend time lamenting their circumstances, even when you've got a complainer on your hands. Yeah, they've gone through some serious challenges in life. They have gone head on with the extremes of life. But it seems like they continue to replay, in the form of a lament, the circumstances of life. How are you going to love them? What are you going to do for them? Might be a parent. Might be a co-worker. Might be somebody in this church. It gets repetitive. But at the same time, Hesed's needed. Now, Eliphaz, one of the three counselors, has given his counsel, his opening counsel, to Job. Took two chapters. And now Job is about to respond. And so here you have it in chapter 6, and Job answers. And Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed. And you say, Gary, I don't use that word very often. Well, if you check out online, vexation carries with the idea to be agitated, to be incredibly, deeply, intensely troubled within. But what captures my attention is that when Job says, oh, that my vexation were weighed, he evidently seized the word that was used by his counselor Eliphaz in the prior chapter. Because in chapter 5, in the opening verses... Eliphaz, the eldest of the three counselors, call now, he would say, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? In other words, whose counselors that were standing around Job at the ash heap of life. And then adds this, surely vexation kills the fool. He's insinuating at this point then that Job is functioning like a fool as if God doesn't exist. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, the psalmist informs us. So now, evidently, that word troubled. That word troubled Job. 
He was vexated over getting vexated, in other words. And so now Job responds, and even though Eliphaz has gone on, said a lot more, Job wants to go back to that statement. You ever find people doing that? You're caring about somebody, it might be your parent, or it might be you're a teacher, it might be that you're a medical professor or a nurse, or whatever the case might be, and somebody wants to go back to that statement that was offered prior. That's what Job's doing here. Now, when somebody goes back to something that was said, that means then we're dealing with something of high value. Don't dismiss that. It might be a child saying that. They're recalling something a parent said. And when they go back to something, maybe it's just one word that was said, maybe yesterday, maybe last week or whatever, that is a word of high value in the heart of that person. The question is why? All that my vexation were ways. Goes on to say, all, and all my calamity laid in the balances. So now what we find is that there is a heaviness to life that's vexating Job. And evidently some of the counsel also is vexating him. For then in verse 3, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. Several years back when he was still in college. It was a Tuesday, my typical day off. Headed down to Trinity where he went to college because my son Ben was going to be pitching that afternoon for his baseball team. Paused and went into the Meyer complex. It's a sports complex just outside of the ball field. And there I was standing and I was watching some people in the weight room. Two individuals stood out to me. One was slight frame, spotted next to him. The other person was heavier frame and a spotter next to him. <coughs> what fascinated me were both the similarities and the differences. The differences were the weights. For the one slighter frame, there was less weight, yet he was straining. For the one with the heavier frame, that person had heavier weights, but he too was straining. What did they share in common? They were straining. What else they had in common was that they had spotters. Now in the fellowship of Christianity, what we find, whether it be in life groups or in equip series, with the men's ministries, with the women's ministries, Awana, with youth group, wherever it is, whatever it is, with whom it is, you and I are the spotters of life. And so what we've got to be able to do is to discern now, not so much how that person is constructed as to how much that weight is being lifted in relationship to how that person is constructed. Because the woman's slight of frame is such that he might be lifting less weight, but on the other hand, he's straining might come easier to the man who is built more powerfully. But what they have in common is that they're straining and they both need spotters. Now what the Church of Jesus Christ does is that we look for people who are carrying heavy weights. And we make ourselves known we're spotters. And we try to discern what is their lift capacity. What is it they're capable of and what is it that they're not capable of? And be a source of encouragement 
and be there to help in case, just in case something goes wrong with the wake. It stands out to me because in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul used two different words to describe burdens that people carry. One of the two was the sort of burden, you see, that's too much to lift. In other words, you need other people to help in the lift. But the second of the two words that described here in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, each will have to bear his own load, is the word which was used to describe a soldier on the battlefield of life who had a backpack. It was meant to be a sense of support for him in the battle, not a burden to him in the battle. Two different forms of burdens. One too much, where it will require others to assist. And the other, which was meant to be a sense of resource in the battle of life. Now what you and I have in reality, day in, day out, with co-workers or in families or whatever, we're trafficking with two minimum different forms of burdens. One type is too much for one person to carry, in which case you become a spotter. And the other, what we find here at this point, is that that person is carrying a backpack into the battles of life. Yeah, it's a burden, but it's a burden of resource. It gives to, it doesn't take from. So now what you and I do at this point is we make absolutely certain that within this congregation, there's adequate spotting, there's adequate caring, and we're meeting needs along the way. Now watch yourself. Because when people are expressing loss, what they'll oftentimes do is use figures of speech. And so now Job here at this point is looking for words because so often when somebody's in pain, they can't find the exact word to be able to connect to the experience of the pain they're enduring. So they might use word imagery. So then in this case, he'll talk about sand and how heavy it is to see. Or in verse 4, he'll turn to archery and says, For the arrows of the Almighty are in me, and my spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And you say, well, it's fascinating to me at this point, Gary, is that he is attributing the afflictions to God. Bear in mind at this point that Job might not have the capacity to do what you and I do. And we talk about God's permissive will. He permits some things to happen. And God's directive will, where he directs things to happen. All he knows is that he believes in the sovereignty of God. But what's absent at this point is any reference against, noted to capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That covenantal relational name for God seems as that God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, but God, God, are you shooting from a distance? Are you dropping weights on me from a distance? Where are you at in the midst of it all? You are sovereign, you know. But then I remember that one of my professors, Dr. Norman Wright, gives those fellow people in our congregations to experience loss, some words to be able to use to express why they're going through what they're going through, and how to equip their comforters to meet needs. 
Dear friend, recently I've suffered a devastating loss. I'm grieving. It's going to take months, even years, to recover from this loss. I want to let you know that I'll cry from time to time. I don't apologize for my tears since they're not a sign of weakness or lack of faith. Tears are God's gift to me to express the extent of my loss. They're also a sign that I'm recovering. At times you might see me angry for no apparent reason. You can't pull off a cause and effect. Sometimes I'm not sure why. All I know is that my emotions are intense because of my grief. And if I don't always make sense to you, please be forgiving and patient with me. And if I repeat myself again and again and again, please accept this as normal. More than anything else, I need your understanding. And I need your presence. You don't always have to know what to say or even say anything if you don't know how to respond. Your presence, a touch, a hug. It lets me know you care. I need to know you care. Please don't wait for me to call, to call you, since sometimes I'm too tired, too tearful. And if I tend to withdraw from you, please don't let me do that. I need you to reach out to me. And so now here, hats off to them. The comforters have come to him. He hasn't gone to them. And they've positioned themselves at a place where other people would be prone to avoid the ash heap. But he's lamenting, and they're listening, and he's talking about God now, but it's not necessarily in a personal way. But he's still acknowledging God as the sovereign one. The imagery shifts again, and you note it because you're attempting to be a counselor. You're attempting to be a comforter. You want to be wise and discerning. Now the figure of speech shifts once more. Now it's the pasture lands. And so you pick it up, and there he has it in verse 5. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass? He's saying, I don't have grass. That's why I'm bray. Or the ox slow over his fodder, but I don't have fodder. And so now he shifts it again, maybe into your kitchen or maybe your dining room at this point. Oftentimes in pastoral counseling, I've picked up on this next one, the lack of taste. Verse 6. Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Sometimes I've found that with a grieving person, they go out to eat and sometimes they're dining alone. And they've lost that sense of explosion of taste in their palate. Everything tastes the same. But then again, does it even taste? Is the palate numb? All food tastes the same? Is there any taste in the juice of the mail? So then... He gets to this whole matter of the digestive. 
when my appetite refuses to touch them. There's food. It's loathsome to me, he says. He's struggling. Now, what are you going to say to him? You're going to be like a Rollins to a Ulysses S. Grant who has to deal with the loss of life, the struggles that he has to endure, and his tendency to escape. Where do you go? What do you do? Some thoughts I've penned again. Life is an adventure. If you're going to live life, you're going to live the adventure. If you live the adventure, you've got to risk the hurt. Don't isolate yourself from life's adventures. Insulate yourself through life's adventures. The challenge is you want to cocoon. There are going to be times where you want to shut the door, where the adventure just seems to be too extreme. And the adventure of life requires an energy for life that seems to be lacking at this point. But then the person of Hesed comes alongside and says, let's go for a walk. And they pour energy into your, into your needy soul. You doing that? See, in times of great hardship, kindness, Hesed, needs to be provided even when friends, even when friends spend time lamenting their circumstances, and you're going to have to be patient with that person who repeatedly is lamenting the same thing again and again and again. But now you're ready, now you're ready, you see, for a second life condition. It's found in verse 8 through 13. I'm equipping you to be a counselor, you see. But my equipping is simply God's word equipping you, sharing what's here. That secondly, in times of great hardship, kindness, hesed, needs to be provided even when friends spend time questioning their resources, when they're saying, in essence, I don't have what it takes. I go in and I go a little deeper and a little deeper and I can't find what's necessary to do what I once did. Got friends like that? been there? Now, he doesn't start with the questions, but you know, he's, he's going to get to the questions. He says, oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope. And you say, everybody now that I deal with and I provide comfort for deals with the whole matter of the tension of the helpless versus the hopeless. And how do I discern that? But as we've pointed out in prior times, we've got statements such as that from John Bunyan. Where there's faith, there's hope. And hope is never ill, wrote Bunyan, when faith is well. And if you're ever like me, been in Rome, checking out the catacombs. In the catacombs, a frequent Christian symbol is the anchor. And the anchor is the symbol of hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, Hebrews 6.19 tells us. And so this person is looking for hope. 
And so you've got to, if you're counseling that person, help them to distinguish between the whole matter of the helpless and the hopeless. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, you might feel helpless with your inner resources, but you are hopeful because of the ultimate resource found in the fact that three days later he was raised from the dead. But you and I are told here that his hope was such, and you're startled in verse 9 when he says it, that it would please God to crush me. Now, he's never suicidal in the book of Job. He views God as sovereign, but then again, he doesn't say capital L-O-R-D here. Again, it's G-O-D. He uses Eloah. He'll use Elohim. He will, on occasion with the Almighty, use El Shaddai. But in the dialogue with his friends, what seems to be a dialogue of the deaf, as Tournier would put it, something's missing. And so he says, I don't want you guys to crush me, but I wish God would step in, interrupt my life, bring this thing to a halt, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off, crush me, use his hand to do so. New wine. Hill song. The lyrics in the crushing and the pressing, you're making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hand when I trust you. I don't need to understand. This is a wisdom book. They picked up on the crushing. They picked up on the use of the hand. And what I've found here is that when you and I begin to grasp the significance of this, we begin to realize that you and I have the capacity at this point to understand that the way to wholeness is through brokenness. And when life has a way of breaking us down, God has a way of restoring us. You might look different than you did previous. But in the process of the restoration project, you're meant for the future because it's through brokenness that you find true wholeness. So you're not startled then when they come along and say, it would please God to crush me. They would let loose his hand, cut me off. And he says, this would be my comfort. Well, that's what it says in verse 10. This is Job speaking at this point. I would even exult in pain and spirit, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. He's conscious of God's words here at this point. But now... He's got questions. And when you and I are ministering to people who've got a sense of loss in their, in their life journey, and they know that this is an adventure, and they don't always have the energy which is necessary to be able to manage the, the endurance aspect of life's adventures, and you walk with them, you're not separate from them. You're not started by their questions. And you don't always have to answer every question. 
can be part of the lament. It can be part of the healing. For them to pose questions without us always providing immediate answers. Questions. Like in verse 11. What is my strength that I should wait? In other words, he's wondering whether or not he's got what it takes to keep on keeping on. But maybe it's good that he's asking that question of himself. Or the next one. And what is my end that I should be patient? Yet isn't that what James will ascribe to Job in the book of James as one of the cardinal virtues in the life of Job? Job's not feeling it right now. He's just asking about it. Is my strength the strength of stones? Is my flesh bronze? He's saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not made of, I'm not made of metal. Have I, have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? What do you do at this point? How do you handle the questions of life that keep coming your way? And the sense of longing for the hope that is obviously found in a relationship with God as Viktor Frankl would have grappled with in the POW experience of World War II, Austrian psychiatrists where he observed that a prisoner did not continue to live very long after hope was lost. But even the slightest ray of hope, the rumor of better food, the whisper about an escape, Equip people to keep on keeping on. And sometimes you simply got to come alongside and let them ask their questions. Pose their challenges. Questions. FDI asked them. Mr. World War II. He had Harry Hopkins by his side. Again, it's President's Day week. Hopkins and Roosevelt. Conversation took place between FDR and Wendell Wilkie, who had just been defeated by Roosevelt in the 1941 election. It's described. Now, Wilkie was about to head off to war torn London, but had been invited to the White House for a brief visit with the president before he headed off. And Roosevelt told him that he would appreciate it if Wilkie would go to visit Harry Hopkins, whom Wilkie would find in London on another assignment. And Wilkie well, he stepped back. He disliked Hopkins intensely. In Sherwood's account of this conversation, Wilkie asked FDR some pointed questions, such as, why do you keep such a man at your side? You surely must realize that people distrust him and they resent his influence. And then Wilkie quoted Roosevelt as saying, I understand, but someday, someday, Wilkie, you may well be sitting where I am now as President of the United States. And when you are, you'll be looking at that door over there, knowing that practically everybody who walks through it wants something out of you, and you'll learn what a lonely job this is, and you'll discover the need for someone like Hopkins who asks for nothing except to minister to you at your point of need which is a hesed moment that Job is longing for at this point. Which leads us then to this third life condition that you and I spot here in these verses. It's rooted in verses 14 down through, you see, verse 23, and I'm going to summarize, but 
Thirdly, that in times of great hardship, kindness, hesed, the Hebrew word oftentimes translated grace, needs to be provided thirdly, even when friends spend time critiquing their relationships. And oh man, the gloves come off. And now Job's going to begin critiquing his friends. They've come all this ways. Man, they're stuck at this ash heap with him. And he's criticizing them. Now you got enough hesed to handle that? When somebody has experienced incredible loss, They're hurting, and now you've got to care for them. He who withholds kindness, Job says, from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You can almost see him now putting his arms together and says, My brothers are as treacherous as a torrent bed. You can just see their eyebrows lift. We came all this ways for this. As torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself when they melt, they disappear. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. And the caravans obtain a look and the travelers of Sheba hope. And there's that word hope again. They can't find refreshment. Traveling down in Israel, Back in October, I was struck with the fact that as we were making our way from the Galilean setting in the north to Jerusalem, the Jordan River gets shallower and shallower until it's all but dried up. The drought conditions are such where if you were at the source, at the starting point, you'd say so much potential. But then you get at the end and you say, and so little provided. And sometimes you might look at your relationships and you say, that person entered my life and at the start, so much potential. But over the course of time, you say, so little provided. It's like a stream, like the Jordan River that just seems to be drying up as it continues to make its way southward, southward, towards, towards Jerusalem. Let them, let them share what's on their hearts. You're tough. People are tough, are people who give acid, you see. And so he then, in verses 22 and 23, dropped down there. He says, make me a gift? Oh, from your wealth, offer me a bribe for me? Another question. Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Question mark. Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? If you're, if you're my brother, then why aren't you coming through for me? Some people were wondering that regarding the promises of Lincoln. President's Day weekend. Lincoln wrote this letter to an aide who told him about a Boston widow whose five sons had died fighting for the Union armies of November 21st, 1864. Quote, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. 
but I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic that they died to save, and I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement, leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and the lost, the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, A. Period. Lincoln. He's trying to find a way in the midst of all the critiquing of he as president to provide comfort. And sometimes, even as a parent, sometimes, even as a coworker, sometimes as a teacher, a nurse, or a physician, Sometimes as a friend, you're going to get critiqued. Hard. Provide acid. And keep loving. Because finally, out of verses 24 through 30, in times of great hardship, kindness, acid, needs to be provided. Even when friends spend time challenging their comforters, and now comes the challenge, he says, teach me, I'll be silent. In other words, they've been challenging him. Make me understand how I have gone astray. He wants to challenge them. I had a baseball coach friend. His natural tendency was to go out and challenge any pitcher on the, on the, on the mound. He thought that that was how you were productive. But I had, he had a wise assistant coach who one time, when he saw that this gifted pitcher on the mound was laboring, and the head coach wanted to go out to challenge him, the assistant coach said, don't challenge him. Nobody challenges him more than he himself. Go out and comfort him. You're doing great good. There are so many different ways to be able to relate to people. Challenging is just one way. Not one size fits all in these kinds of situations. Teach me. I'll be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. Show me. Show me. Drop down to 28 through 30. But now, be pleased to look at me. Evidently, they're not looking at him. They're thinking, man, this guy needs a dermatologist or something. Look at what the boils have done to him. Because then he says, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. In other words, they must be looking away. They, they're having a hard time. They, they've come all this way, and now they can't do eyeball to eyeball. My vindication says, stake. is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of my calamity? Everything in life is so tasteless at this point. He's back to his uh, ability to be able to discern food. The food of counsel. Lincoln knew where to go for counsel. Where have you been? He was asked. To the war department, he answered. Any news? Plenty news, but no good news. It's dark. It's dark out there. It's dark everywhere. And then he reached, and one of his long arms took a small Bible from a stand near the head of the sofa. 
opened its pages, soon absorbed in its reading. As McCartney tells us, 15 minutes passed, and on glancing at the sofa, his wife observed that the face of the president became relaxed. His dejected expression was gone, his countenance was lighted up with new resolution and hope, and wondering at the market change and desiring to know what book of the Bible had comforted Mr. Lincoln, she walked gently around the sofa and saw that he was reading from the book of Job and found great comfort there. So what you and I do is we bring Hesed into the life situations that come our way. We bring Hesed there. And even when we're critiqued, and even when we have to listen, the result is Father, this is about equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Selective chapters from the book you inspired. We've explored the lamenting of circumstances. Ponder the questioning of resources. Take a deep breath when we think about our life relationships and the critiquing of them and the challenging of comforters when the comforters might come a long way to comfort or take time off from work to do so. But we need a verse 14 in our relationships. And I pray that everybody will leave here today in all these services with the sense of Hesed is got to be foremost and central. Because even on the cross of Jesus Christ, we find Jesus comforting a, a thief to the side. We find Jesus comforting what will be a mother in pain down below. We see Jesus, and people need to see Jesus when we enter in with our hesed into the experiences that they're facing. So give us the wisdom while we need from this wisdom book, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name.